Welcome to Talk Town. Curtis Marshall has competed in two World Junior Championships and represented Australia at the Rio Olympic Games in the pole vault, all before his 20th birthday. These are some of the moments that make up his life. Welcome, Curtis. Today's first question, what is your earliest memory? Hi, Rick. Um, it's, it's a struggle to remember my first memory because it was so long ago, <laughs> 20, 20 years ago. It was probably my first memory uh, was when I went down to my family's shack down the river uh, and I, w- I went fishing for the first time. I just thought fishing was absolutely insane back then. I thought, wow. What are these slippery, slimy fishes that come out of the ocean? I think I think I just fond memory of mine was just going fishing fishing with my family for some. Yeah. Do you have any early memories of like kindergarten or playing around your house? What sort of things did you get up to? When I was a little kid, I grew up in Happy Valley, um, and Happy Valley is sort of you know suburbs, southern suburbs of Adelaide, and there's lots of creeks, lots of lakes, lots of pipe systems, lots of drainage systems, and I used to love always walking around there, bringing my mates over and just go discovering the place. Sometimes my mum would say, you know, come back in, in an hour or so, and I, I'd be out for two, three hours, and she'd just be wondering where I was, because this is before I had a telephone, like back primary school, and I would just love going out, um, playing in the drains and getting muddy, dirty, coming home, and then having to get it all off, and mum complaining, and yeah, it was a good time. Did you have a, early memories of with your mum and your dad? How you got along with them as a little kid? Were they just people that fed you, or do you have sort of memories of else as a little kid? When I was a little kid, I grew up. Mum was a single mum until I was about six, um, where she met my now stepdad Wes. Or his name's John. I call him Wes because his last name's West Phelan call him Wes, but um, yeah, until that time, it was just mum and I in our house, and pretty much it was just mum and I had the best relationship. She would uh, be working at the time, I'd be, you know, going to kindy during the day, and then I'd come home, and she'd just, like, she'd always be so organised with things to do. She always kept me on my toes, she always kept me, you know, enjoying life, learning how to, how to engage with food, how to engage with the wildlife. We always had pets at our house, so... That was always awesome. And then when my stepdad came along, it was um, the the whole family just sort of bonded and it became this awesome camaraderie which we had. Uh, and my parents always took an interest in whatever I was doing, whether it was sport or school or just going out to have a kick with the footy. Um, my dad was always there. And then mum was always just the one who would always put food on the table when I got home, always made me happy. And during the primary school days, it was... A real good um, camaraderie mum and I had, uh, and she was sort of the one that I can definitely give credit to for all my success in the later years because she set me up pretty well, I think, and um, yeah, she's done a pretty good job. What was your first primary school you went to? I went to Brayview High School down in, in Happy Valley, which was about a five-minute um, drive from my house. Sometimes I'd walk, sometimes I'd ride. Um, but my primary school was sort of one of the lower class primary schools because mum at the time when she enrolled me was a single mum. Uh, she just finished her apprenticeship. She was working as a as a chef in some you know restaurants around Adelaide. And yeah, it was it wasn't the best of schools. She probably would have liked me to go to a better one. And it had a a brother school or a sister school of Ranella East High School, which ended up being where all my friends went. But I ended up going to high school at Woodcroft College, which wasn't exactly where everything was sort of intended, but it was a very good school. And Sticking with the primary school for a bit, did you mm. do well academically in primary school? Primary school, I was a little rascal, yeah. I probably wasn't the best academically. I much preferred being on my feet and doing sort of stuff. I remember, I think it was year two, mum always tells me, that I was in a reception year one and two class when I was year two. And she always reckons that I got held back because I was in a three-year um, level class, being the oldest, where they had to adapt all the teachings just for the real youngsters and me, which I was sort of like starting to get the hold of you know, maths and English. But they had to cater for the younger ones as well. So she reckons that brought me down. That's why I'm a little bit... <laughs> but, you know, no, um, primary school, it was... 
it was all right. I enjoyed playing outside. I, I have this funny memory, actually. It was a wet winter's day, and my mate and I, we wore shorts and t-shirt, uh, because we always loved wearing shorts and t-shirt. No one liked wearing tracksuit pants back in the day, but it was it was a rainy day, and we went out uh, at lunch or, or recess, it could have been either, and we slipped in this puddle. He landed face first in the mud. I landed on top of him, got absolutely no mud on me, but he was covered, and then we both had to go to the principal's office and... Had to get a new change of clothes, but yeah, primary school was a lot of fun. And did you do any special sports there, or did you just do all sports in school? Primary school, my my main school sport was uh, AFL, and I I liked, I started playing AFL as of grade two, uh, so that was my main sport back then. I think I think I toyed a little bit with little athletics at the time, but it was it was mainly footy. I really loved the team camaraderie when I was young. It was awesome. Love getting up on Saturday mornings and playing a game with the boys. Did you have to have one number every week? Uh, my lucky number back then was always number seven. I don't know why. Probably because my favourite football player was Nathan Van Berlo, who wore number seven. It's cool. Mine was seven and 17. Seven and 17. There you go. <laughs> um, now, let's move on to high school. Uh, you said you went to a, um, a high school nearby. So just to sort of talk about life at high school same thing academically mm. we'll just go through the same system here academically how did you go through your high school so woodcroft college was where i went which was actually where my mother ended up getting a teaching job later after her cooking career um she became a home ec teacher and then got me into woodcroft college and it was it was a bit funny having my mum as a teacher there and me as a student, it was almost like she would know everything. She would know if I was mucking up in class, uh, she would always be the first to hear. Whatever my grades were, she was able to find out before I even knew. So it was pretty crazy having mum there. Uh, I enjoyed it because she was always there. If I ever needed anything, if I ever needed help. Um, also, I was probably one of the mischievous kids in the class. I was more of a physically active kid rather than you know, like enjoying sitting down at lunchtime and um, just talking amongst the group. I was one of the kids that would always want to get up and play soccer or play footy or throw the frisbee or something like that. So I think at that time in high school, I was more of a sport-loving student instead of the academic side. I was all right. I'd probably get um, average Cs. Uh, hang on, what's A B? Yeah, B's and C's when I was when I was in high school, but sport took up most of my time at that point. And what sports did you specialise in at high school? Was it still Aussie rules mainly, or did you introduce other? It was at age thirteen where I had to choose between athletics and footy. Uh, I'd still been doing little athletics when I was young, and I was all right. I was pretty good at it. You know, it was pretty good at high jump, long jump. I was hurdling a little bit because that's what my coach knew. He was very good. His name was Gabby Phyllis. He was, he's been my childhood coach all my life. And um, we only just parted last year because he was my running coach up until then. I had to choose between athletics and footy. And footy, I loved. Don't get me wrong. I was, I was in love with this team sport. I loved showing up every training session, working hard, and then playing games was awesome, uh, especially winning them. I think I remember... Winning a few games back in the day when I was playing for my club. I think we even won a premiership in under-14s or something like that. But I, And I think that was my last year. So I chose athletics predominantly because when you travel for football, you travel domestically. You can travel around Australia, and that's awesome. But then athletics, if you make it to the next level, you can travel the world. And I was like, I'm sold on that because I love traveling. I think it's awesome showing up to the airport. Um, whenever you have a trip ahead of you, it's always like a new adventures in front of you. So that's that's. You went basically from that age group uh, competing at Santos Stadium mm. and started pole vault, and I think you pretty well made a state team on your first crack. I did, yeah. I uh, took up pole vault as soon as I finished footy uh, at age thirteen, and uh, <laughs> yeah, that was when I started senior athletics out at the track, converted from little ass to seniors. I, yeah, took up pole vault and went to the All Schools Nationals in Doncaster in 2010 and came away with a bronze medal, which was insane. I never thought I'd be that good at pole vault. Not many kids were very good at that age at pole vault and there's not many kids that do it. 
uh, compared to you know hundred meter sprinting or high jump or long jump, all the popular events, which I which I loved, and I I also went to nationals for, but I never managed to scrape you know a medal or anything in them, and I was like, look, Povo, geez, this might be my calling. Now I need to go um, a little bit past there now, and you need to tell a story when I took you to America because <laughs> this links a bit later on in the interview. What happened at the airport in Sydney Airport? Oh, oh yeah, so being a notorious uh, young 14-year-old, I think I was at the time, I had a new phone on me, and I was ready to rock and roll, ready to take photos of my trip overseas, have an awesome time, um, and we went through the security, and as, like hadn't even left Australia yet, we were in Sydney, and I left my phone in security in one of the crates that you put through the scanner, and then I got on the plane. I think I even got off the plane um, in America and I was like, where's my phone? I need to contact my parents saying that I'm... Oh, and Rick, oh, I didn't hear the end of it the whole trip. I left my phone in Sydney. And uh, you uh, toured, a, a, it was a school's trip to America and you uh, had great success on pole vaulting over with competing with groups of at least 50 athletes mm. in the school's pole vault. What was that like as a oh. the kid turning up? Yeah, it was insane. I went overseas for the first, this was the first time I'd ever been overseas. And I went with this group of young aspiring athletes with Rick and his wife, Patty, and um, went over to these school meets in, in the US, which was my first taste of, you know, international competition, even though it wasn't of a high standard. And I wasn't a very good vaulter back then, jumping 350, 380, um, on the brink of four meters, I think, but not quite there yet. And I was yeah, introduced to the way the American system works, which is everyone does, you know, there are so many kids out there. There were thousands of people um, all over the country that would love and live and breathe pole vault. And I was like, what is this? I don't know anyone else in Adelaide that does pole vault outside of my squad. So seeing people show up with pole bags and borrowing poles and, you know, 50 kids on one mat at one time, all jumping just for their school, just for fun. All of them had shocking technique. I'm not going to lie. It was oh, horrid. But, you know, despite that, they all loved it. They all went out there and had an awesome time. But, you know, the amount of people that compete in this sport that I love around the world, it's sort of like opened my eyes and was like, well, I can really take this somewhere because if, if they can do it, why can't I? Some of those kids you competed against and young coaches there are coaching still and they still follow you. Yeah, that's awesome. I still have ties with some of the guys that I stayed with at Moore Park High when we um when I stayed with a few of the school kids there. That was awesome. It was a real probably um the time that I would say instigated my athletics career and my pro- professionalism towards athletics. I never thought of taking it very far. I always liked the idea of competing to my best ability. But knowing that there was this whole world out there that also loved playing my, you know, doing pole vault, playing my sport, I was like, you know what, we could take this all around the world if we wanted to. So that's what started it. So let's just jump forward now. Then you're um, you, you qualified for World Juniors, and you you qualified young for mm. World Juniors. Can we just talk about qualifying for World Juniors and that going on that trip? You can go anywhere you like with this. No worries. Yeah, so. Awesome. So. 2012, I went to the US with you guys for the first time, and I was, I think, about 14. And then I was like, all right, I got to take up this sport. I got to sort of dedicate a bit of my life to it instead of just playing around at it. And uh, two years later, after working pretty hard at the technique, having good guidance through good coaches and stuff, um, I managed to jump the World Junior Qualifier at age 16. I jumped 505 uh, the week before nationals which was absolutely insane. I was like, what is going on? Couldn't comprehend being a five-meter vaulter at age 16. I think two other people in Australia had ever done that. At the time, that was pretty awesome. I was jumping pretty high for my age, uh, and I was like, whoa, I'm on top of the world here. I've qualified for world juniors. Now I just got to go to nationals and solidify my spot in the team. But nationals, there were three three guys who were jumping about five meters and it all could have been selected for the world juniors one guy had jumped 510 so he and he won the competition uh jumped 510 in the competition so he was automatically selected that was jack hicking and then it was me and this new other new south wales guy 
who hadn't jumped five meters yet, um, and I had, which was very lucky because on the day, it was a shocking rainy day, everyone wasn't jumping very well, and it came to um, 490, and I missed 490, and he got it. So he had an attempt at World Junior Qualifying High at Nationals, which is he would have been selected if he got it, but he ended up missing the high, and I got selected on the team just because I got it um, a few weeks earlier. Knowing that I got to represent Australia at age 16, it was probably the one of my biggest honours, I think, um, besides going to the Olympics later. It was probably the time uh, in my life where I was like, Pavoling is for you. You've you've obviously shown that you can represent your country. You can compete around the world at the same level that guys do in America, in France, all around you know Europe and that sort of stuff. So I was like, all right, let's let's take this opportunity under your belt. I was 16. World Juniors is an under 20 comp, so I was competing against guys you know three years older than me. But I went over. It was in Eugene, Oregon. Uh, in America, which is I'd consider the home of track and field in America, so they always have their U.S. trials, U.S. Olympic trials there. It's a really good track. Um, and when we got there, when the team arrived, I was probably one of the youngest on the team. I think third youngest on the team. Uh, I was just blown away. It was insane. The the atmosphere of an international meet like that, of a high caliber international meet. Um, just absolutely swept me off my feet. It was ridiculous. The whole crowd, I'd say 40,000 people packed into um, Track Town, Track Town Stadium and all there watching athletics and just absolutely having a ball. People slow clapping the pole vaulters, which I'd never even heard before because you don't get that sort of vibe in Australia. No one really comes out and watches and spectates athletics, whereas over there it's a huge sport and to do it in Eugene, the home of um, track and field in the US, it was awesome feeling and competing against people from all around the world. I went over there with probably one of the lowest qualifying heights, you know, just scraped the qualifying. I went over there, jumped, a f- jumped five meters in the comp in the qualifying round and just missed the final by two, two places, I think, which actually um, I'm pretty good at. <laughs> because I've done that once again later in my life. I learned from that experience. It was it was pretty awesome. I jumped pretty well for my first big international competition and had an absolute insane experience. Loved the team environment, loved traveling with the team and loved the professionalism of it. And I loved how people would go about their training uh, just as I did, which I couldn't really relate to guys back in Adelaide because no one really can understand what it's like to be an elite pole vaulter, whereas people over there, they all train. They all train six, seven, eight, ten times a week, just like I did. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. I can really relate to some of these people. And, you know, that's what I always look forward to now. Ever since I got that first taste in Eugene, I was like, I'm going to keep doing this for years to come. So after the World Juniors, uh, you came back to Australia, back into training with your coach, Kim. Then you had you basically competing in senior nationals. Just talk about it because you've um, had an amazing success with it leading up to the next World Juniors. Yeah, so I came back from Eugene, Oregon, and I was like, all right, I'm 16, turning 17. Let's let's up my training a little bit more. So I started incorporating some lifting, some weight sessions, and some running sessions, which all complemented my pole vault. I did that for the next two years, gathered my strength after five, after jumping 505. The following season, I jumped 5.42, and I was like, all right, things are improving here. Things are looking good. And then it comes to 2016, the domestic season in Australia. I hadn't jumped a PB for more than a year. It had been a long, grinded road. Like I was was in heavy training. Everything was going well. I didn't compete till later in the season because I wanted to save myself for the nationals, and I wanted to see if I could get another qualifying height under my belt uh, to go over to World Juniors in 2016. I'd been saving myself and I'd sort of been doubting myself a little bit. Oh, am I going to be able to make the team? Can I PB? You know, because there were three other guys who had got the qualifying height this time around, which was different to 2014 when I went. There were a lot of guys who um, were jumping pretty well the same as me. And if I didn't pull out a good height at nationals, then I might 
sacrifice my spot on the team. But you know, it came around. Nationals were in Perth. I had a I had the comp. I think it was it was seven p.m. on like the Thursday night, one of the last days of competition, and everyone else who had been competing around me had had an awesome meet, and I was like, all right, let's go out there. It's a good opportunity. Perth is really good for pole vaulters. You always get a tailwind. It's a fast track. It's going to be awesome. So I went out there, did my routine, stuck to my routine, did all my warm-up, felt good. And then when I went out there, all my other competitors, obviously all feeling the same. There was a big crowd there because it was a highly anticipated meet. Everyone wanted to watch us boys fight fight out for the two spots. Um, and it came down to the last few jumps where myself, Declan and Angus, my other two competitors, who'd all cleared uh, 520. Bar raised to 5.40, which was well into the qualifying. I think the qualifying was 5.10. So it all got the qualifying height, but then it was down to who would place first or second. I cleared 5.40 first attempt and Angus cleared 5.40 first attempt, but Angus uh, Declan missed. So Declan was out the comp. Uh, and then the bar raised to 5 meters 50, which would have been a PB for me. It was still Angus and I fighting it out. Even though we knew we'd been selected at this point, we were just, you know, weight off our shoulders, let's go for it. And I ended up jumping a 550, um, which was a PB at the time, uh, just to qualify myself for World Juniors. Angus missed it, so I was the highest jumper in Australia at the time, which was pretty awesome and had a pretty successful uh, rest of the domestic season where I jumped 550 again at Open Nationals to win Opens, which was the first time I'd ever done that, which was pretty awesome. So how old were you for the Open Nationals? I was 18 when I won 18. Open Nationals for the first time, yeah, cool. youngster. <laughs> so from the Open, from those two events, really, it catapulted mm. you back into the World Juniors. Yeah. So where did you travel? Mm. So World Juniors this time was in Bydgosz, Poland, which is their, their sporting capital of Poland. It's actually quite a world-renowned place to jump big because I know... Uh, one guy who came second to Steve Hooker in 2008, he's jumped 601 there. So it was a pretty good track, obviously, for pole vaulters to jump big. And I was looking forward to the trip. I was really excited. I was in good shape. I think I was in the top top few um, around the world, jumping 5 metres 50. That would have placed me top top 5, top 4. Um, and then it came to leaving. So we went to, had a pre-departure camp in Townsville. I jumped all right there, getting my body back in shape, and I jumped 540. I was I was feeling pretty good. I was confident. And then two weeks later, late June, so two weeks, I think, later, um, and about a week before the Olympic Games qualifying mark cutoff, cutoff date, I jumped 5 metres 50, as, as I said, which was my best, and the Rio qualifying was 570. And at this point, I was, you know, if if I can attempt 560, I'd be stoked. Even if I jumped like a slight PB of 55 or 60 overseas, that would just top it off. But came to Germany, Mannheim. Mannheim is one of the um, best places to jump in the world for pole vault. It's always got a tailwind. It's a mondo track. It's slightly downhill. And we use this as one of my pre pre-competitions um, and lead up for World Juniors. And as I said, it was a week in the qualifying period until it cut off uh, for Rio. So I went in there, no expectations whatsoever, jumped 5 metres 50 on my first attempt, easy, I was feeling really good. Then I went to 5 metres 60 and cleared that on my second attempt. So making the most of the situation, jumped to PB, I was like, all right, this is awesome. Um, I was lucky enough to have my coach there as well. And he was like, mate, if there's ever going to be a chance of you qualifying for Rio, it's going to be this time. So he was like, just put it to 70. Five metres 70 uh, in front of my whole world junior team, in front of my coach. It was, you know, a real buzz. I attempted it uh, first attempt. I went up a pole, tried to clear it. Uh, pole was too stiff, spat me up and straight down on the bar second attempt i was very close i actually felt really good in this 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 jump it was probably the best jump i'd ever done in my life but it was slightly um shallow so i came down on the bar as i had the hip height yeah so i was like all right 
that was a very good jump. And I was talking to my coach and I said, you know, I've got to bring the standards in, move the bar closer because uh, that was the best jump I've ever done. And, and my coach was like, nah, we're leaving them where you are, where they are. And you're just going to go out there and just replicate that and just refine it, do it even better. And I just had to go out there and move my run up back a little bit. I was running faster. I had the adrenaline of the crowd. I was overseas. I had my coach there. I had no worries at all. Slight bit of pressure just because it was, you know, just before the cutoff period. But it was a PB. I'd had a PB. I'm just going for this crazy height, 570. Third attempt. And I was just like, look, let's just go out there. You've done it a million times. And I went out there on the track and got the clap going and executed probably the best jump I'd done yet again just after the one I did and cleared the bar. Qualified myself for Rio, which was pretty insane. Uh, One week before the cutoff. Yeah. So from that, it was pretty emotional time. And Kim, your coach had been there, which was great. Then he had to come back to Australia. You had to go into camp because you were going to Rio. Yeah, my so I I was overseas, just planning on going to World Juniors, and then I had to put another month of overseas on the on the end of that. My coach had to come home, had to book all these things, all these things last minutes. My parents decided to come over as well, so that was all rushed. But um, my coach was home for like four days between the two championships, and it was just a huge buzz the whole world junior team no one had qualified in the whole world junior team and it's quite rare for a junior to qualify for the olympics and i managed to do that which was pretty awesome like being one of the only people there to do it it was awesome so has anybody been so years of athletics probably solomon yep. and uh yana Pittman. yep yeah. only juniors <laughs> yep and then there was me yep. yeah pretty good company pretty good company all those guys pretty pretty up there so they, the australian team then you're p- packaged off to germany to yep. rest and recover and train. Yeah. Uh, just sort of talk us through Cologne and what you had there. Yeah. So I went to Cologne after the World Juniors. Uh, actually, well, at Juniors, I managed to snag a silver medal overseas, um, which was to my surprise, actually, because I was I was ranked quite high in the world at that point. Um, I was I was a little bit disappointed that I didn't come away with the gold, but considering I jumped a 20-centimeter PB... Two weeks before, I was like, you know what, this is still awesome. Came over there, came away with the silver medal. But I learned a lot during that comp. I learned that the competition is never over until, you know, everyone is out. Even if some other bloke who you totally doubt will get the bar, if he has one more attempt, he's still got a chance to get it, even if it's 20 centimetres above his PB, like I did two weeks before. And it just happened to be that way that this American guy... Um, had a PB of 5.47, was attempting 5.60 to win the competition off of me because I'd cleared 55. He had to pass his third attempt at 55 to go into the lead at 60 and had one attempt to clear it and ended up clearing it to, to come out on top, which I was pretty gutted with, but, you know, that's the nature of sport. I learned a lot from it. World Juniors was a really good experience and it was a really good stepping stone before going to over to Cologne, and then over into holding camp before Rio. So it taught me a lot. But yeah, Cologne was was where I went after World Juniors. I went over there for a week just to gather myself. Like I'd, I'd just qualified for the Olympics. I'd just come off the biggest competition of my life at World Juniors. I had to, you know, sort of center myself and just relax. My coach went back home for the time I was there. And I just had to regroup. So I used Cologne, which is the AA base in Europe, for athletics uh, as a little bit of a retreat. I kept up my training. And when I got over there, expecting just to be you know, on my own over there, just, just chilling, having a week off. But all the other athletes that had qualified for Rio were all over there in, in Europe already. And I was like, I was just walking down the corridor of our hotel and bumping into Alana Boyd. And then Danny Samuels was down the hall. Jeff Risley and all these huge names in athletics. I was like, wow, I'm I'm here with these guys. I'm I'm really mixing it here. It's a pretty awesome feeling knowing that you're up there against you know all these big dogs that you sort of see on TV and you're like, well, I want to be like them one day. And then I'm there in the same meat hotel, you know, just cruising with them. Um, and I just used that week to, 
you know, sort of realize what I'd done, but then use that to to move on and then square up my head for the next chapter, which was, you know, holding camp and going into Rio. With that time there, just getting yourself together, was that something you did with you and your coach pre-organized or did they did they have a sports psychologist you had things through? Was there some sort of debrief you did to help mm. you prepare for the next massive step from world games? Yeah, well, I used Cologne um, as a good, you know, centering of myself. I had just come off the back of a huge comp and then I had to back it up again uh, in three weeks, I think it was later. But I actually see a sports psychologist in SA. His name's uh, Jeff. He helped me a lot um, going over to World Juniors, refining my routine and getting me to think right all about the um, things that you can control and not the things you can't. And at that point, I had a I had a Skype call with him, um, and I was on the phone to him uh, while I was in Cologne, and we were just chatting about you know random stuff like you're in Europe now. That's that's crazy. How awesome is that? It's better than him being at home, you know, in Adelaide. Poor old Adelaide's probably raining. It was awesome time uh, weather over there, time of year. So I was just soaking that in, and he was like, "All right, look, you've got, you've just done, you've just had the biggest comp of your life, just gone, but you've got another one coming up." And it was really hard to sort of switch off for that sort of week, and then be able to switch back on. And he sort of gave me these these techniques of how to switch back on. And switching off and switching on is really important in our sport, and it's what I've learned over the past few years. Um, Switching—it's like it's like playing cricket. If you're out there all day, big test match, and the batsman's out there on the pitch all day, they can't be switched on all day. They can't be focusing for you know five hours straight. They have to learn to switch on and off between balls, and that's really important in the athletics world as well. Even though it's sort of totally different, but to be able to switch off when you can and not think about athletics and just go eat some good food, go watch some movies, go chat with your mates. That was really important for me in that week that I was in Cologne because I was just able to leave the athletics behind and then, you know, regroup myself. But then when I moved into holding camp the week later, uh, after speaking to my sports psychologist, he was like, all right, this is time now to switch back on. My coach had flown into holding camp. Once I saw him, I was like, all right, it's it's game time now. We've got to get back to training. We have 10 days to you know, get yourself back into shape, refine the things that you might not have done great overseas, but then you know, at World Juniors and then you know, refine that and jump better in Rio. Uh, so I did that. I came into holding camp and there were all these huge names and I was like, oh, Jared Talent was there, the local SA boy, Jess Trengrove. Henry Frayn, uh, Fabrice Lapierre, all these huge names in athletics, and I was like, "Whoa, this is the real deal now. You've you've made you've made it." Um, but yeah, I just had to move past that. Became friends with all those guys. Accepted that they were all athletes, all there to do their job, and I was there to do mine. And that's exactly what we did. I just pretty well went back into training. Was able to switch my mind back onto athletics because we're in this nice, uh, confined situation of holding camp where you just eat, sleep, train and talk to the other guys and I was able to switch back on and that's really what helped me get back into the zone for Rio. So holding camp, um, was mm. that in Florida? I was in Florida, yep, at the I, I, IMG Academy. Right, so the whole Australian track team basically met up there prior mm. to the opening. Yeah, it's usually the case before any major, the Australian athletics team come together, get, a, you know, sort of group up and then get, you know, get ourselves on track for the major comp that's about to happen because I think going into holding camp, you can leave all the things that happen at home behind. You can leave the the media, the paparazzi, not that we get it as track and field athletes, but, you know, all the stresses of being at home and being in relationships and, you know, uni or work, you can just leave that behind and just go into camp, focus on training, eating and sleeping and recovering well. And, you know, that's, that's really what helps. So in holding camp, you had a little mini Australian opening ceremony. Yeah, unfortunately, we weren't we weren't at the opening ceremony in Rio uh, because athletics is second week of the program. So we only flew in after the opening ceremony, uh, just before our comp starts. I think I flew in three days before my comp uh, in Rio. But I think that's a good idea. I think Athletics Australia has got that down pat by now because the longer you find yourself in the Olympic Village, and I found this out after I competed, after my comp, uh, you sort of get into this, you know, 
you don't care about anything sort of you know there's no worries you just have to wake up go to the dining hall eat whatever you want go train sometimes or even if you finish comp you sort of just chill in the hotel room or go watch events or something like that and you sort of get way out of routine which is not what you used to back home because back home you have people to talk to um, you have your family there you have home you have to come home cook your meals go to uni go to work you know other distractions whereas the olympics if you're in the village for too long you sort of get this um, olympic fever which is which is pretty bad i think if you get if you're there too long before your comp you get too much out of routine because everything is just spoon fed for you you just do nothing uh it's so easy if you go overseas for comps beforehand where it's all like hectic you have to organize everything and then you go into the village and you just drop everything everything's spoon fed it's just sort of like way different and it's really hard to just get back on top of your game in that situation it's the first time you've been to south america uh, was it mm. was Rio just way different than living? You've been in America twice now. Yep. Uh, is it feel like another world, or did it? Feel- it did. It was it was pretty insane. Go especially when it's Olympic Games. Like if you just travel to South America like that, it's a it's a different culture as it is. But if there's an Olympic Games there, it just turns it into another planet, man. It was it was ridiculous. I went over there with the expectations of you know it's the Olympics, it's gonna be big. Um, it's going to be just like the AFL grand final happening in, you know, 10 different stadiums around the city. But um, I honestly was not prepared for it. There, There's nothing that can compare to the Olympic Games on the planet. Um, and especially going there uh, as my first major international, you know, open competition. The Olympics is huge. It's incomparable to anything. Just showing up and just being, you know, escorted around by the army and like going through the towns and like a special bus lane that would take us straight to the accommodation with no traffic lights nothing like that it was just like we were royalty and um just the brazilian culture as well was so laid back and just they would do whatever they want um they would have crowds that would exceed the stadium's capacity by ten thousand um if they were allowed to and you know it was just everyone got around the vibe of the olympics which is what i loved there was Never a single seat empty in one of the biggest in in like any of the big competitions, like maybe early, you know, qualifying rounds or something. But if it came to a final, um, the whole stadium was packed and the whole vibe around the city just got around the Olympics. Um, so your first competition at the, uh, do you want to just talk about going to the going to the stadium? Let's just yeah. go from the hotel to the stadium. You've done a couple of training sessions with the coach. He's sort of tried to meet up with you in different venues. Yeah, he actually talked quite a bit about. The venues not been the right venues, but you did actually meet up and train together. Yeah, <laughs> and then you're off to the stadium to compete. Yeah, so just sort of run through the actual day, maybe of getting to the. All right. The so I, uh, I sh- it came around comp day, and I was I was in good shape. I'd done all my training sessions, even if they were at wrong venues or anything like that. But um, I managed to get myself to the day in one piece in a good headspace, and I was, you know what, that's pretty good. Uh, so I, I took this opportunity. I got on the bus with all my gear, double checked all that I've got everything, my numbers, my spikes, my towel, all my um, food and water and Powerade and all that sort of stuff. Ready to go. Got on the bus, uh, probably which was way earlier than I usually would if I had a competition in Australia, but I had to plan for this because it was a 100-minute call room for the pole vault in Rio compared to the 70 minutes it is at nationals and no call room in Adelaide. So it was it was huge. I had to get on the bus probably four hours before comp start time. Took about 40 minutes to get to the get to the venue from the village. Got off the bus and walked up the stairs, um, up this ramp to the warm-up track, which was all, you know, blocked off just for athletes and coaches if you had your accreditation. And I showed up and absolutely no one was there. I was like, What's going on? I thought everyone was really going to be warming up thoroughly, getting there early, doing all this. But it turns out I was there really early and everyone started showing up, you know, gradually after I got there. I was probably one of the first people there, you know, for the pole vaulters. And we were early in the afternoon session, uh, probably at about seven, six o'clock start time. 
so and the other events don't really start till about seven. So we were out there early, and I was I was there mid afternoon before I started warming up. And then all the other competitors who I'd researched, you know, had had looked at, had seen on TV, they all just started strolling in like it was like it was nothing. And I was like, what's going on here? I'm I'm like stressing out. This is the biggest comp of my life. I got to get my get myself together, get everything gathered, and you know, do everything perfectly. But then I it sort of came to me that everyone that had that I was competing against had been there before. They'd all done this. They'd all done the European circuit. They're all older than me. I think the next youngest guy was actually the winner of the comp, who was 20, 23. Still four years older than me. I was 19 at the time, and I was I was probably stressing a little bit too much. But then I, I had my coach there. I had team staff there, and they were like, mate, what are you stressing about? You've done this a million times. You... You do exactly the same warm up every single time. Your body pulls up great. You know when to take on your your energy, like your muesli bar or your banana before you go out. You know exactly when to drink water. If you need to go to the toilet, mate, don't stress about it. There's nothing you can do. You've got yourself here in a really good spot. So let's just use that. Go out there, give it your best shot. And that's what I was like. I was like, all right, let's let's just do what I always do. I went out there in the warm up track. Started doing my jogs, doing my drills, not worrying about what everyone else was doing. Just did me. That really helped. I I was sort of I got there and I was like, whoa, I'm stressing out. This is big. But then once I got my warm up underway, I was ready to rock. Yeah, and then um pretty well after that, got into the call room. Um so I took the bus there, warmed up, did all my normal stuff, then it was time to go into the call room. Everyone, all of my competitors were there. And these are big competitors. These are big names. There's the world record holder in my field. There's, you know, the Brazilian guy who was the youngest there apart from me who had jumped 590. There's the American champion, the Canadian, the previous world champion, you know, Commonwealth Games champion. All these guys, these huge names in this field that I'm just sitting next to in the courtroom. And I was just like, whoa, this is unreal. I can't really compare this to anything else that I've ever done. It's like I'm meeting all these celebrities that people dream of seeing and I'm just sitting there with them having a casual chat in the in the in the call room um so yeah got into the call room was mind blown by the fact that all these guys were there 100 minutes before comp start time everyone got their name ticked off it was in two pools and then we went to the second call room which was underneath the grandstand underneath the grandstand was where they did all like the formal checks of your spikes your number your competition gear all that, I had everything on, I had everything organized, it was all good, um, and there was this little uh, 100 meter bend underneath the grandstand on the track, uh, which, which was laid in, in tartan and you could warm up on, so I did sort of a secondary warm up with a little few run throughs, and everyone else sort of started their warm up there, whereas I'd been warming up prior, because I didn't think I'd have this opportunity, but anyway, it was all good, I had enough energy to survive the whole thing. Um, so I just kept kept doing my warm up, stayed warm, did some jogs, you know, stayed relaxed, and um, started talking to a few of the guys in the core room. And one of the guys who I really connected with was Sam Kendricks. Sam Kendricks is the American champion. Uh, the last few years, he's been really up there with the likes of the world record holder at every single Diamond League, always around the place. And he just sort of took me under his wing, and he was like, "You you look young." And I was like, yeah, hi, my name's Curtis Marshall, 19-year-old from Australia. He was oh, you're the bloke that jumped 570 in Mannheim. And I was like, yeah, that's me. You know, I was like, whoa, it was, that was awesome. Um, and he sort of took me under his wing and he was like, all right, you know you know what to do. Um, the drill is pretty well the same as everywhere else, except you just got a bigger crowd here. Um, and he was just a jokester. He loved every single second of being out there as well, just like I did. Uh, and the, the qualifying round, which was for me the final, but him the qualifying round, he was just taking it chill. He was all good. He just needed to jump, you know, a 5 meter 70 casual 5 meter 70 to get into the final, which he was pretty crazy with. So he just went about it pretty relaxed. And and then I was actually sitting with him opposite the world record holder, the French guy, Renault Lavellini. And those two are good mates, Sam and Renault. And Sam ended up asking Renault, Look, this I just I just met this guy. His name's Curtis. Um, he has a very bad accent, bad, bad French accent. The world record holder. But um, Sam asked Renault 
have you got any tips for the youngster? And he was like, he sort of laughed and he was like, ha ha ha. There's nothing really you can do now, but enjoy yourself. So I took those words to heart and I was like, you know what? This guy obviously knows what he's talking about. And if he says go out there and enjoy it, it's obviously for a reason. So he obviously enjoys himself when he's out there. So why not I go out there and enjoy myself? And that's that that meet started on time. Yeah, no, it didn't. Uh, So (laughs) came to the qualifying round and there's, oh, it's because it's Brazil, you know, of course there's going to be something wrong. So they had, they anticipated on using these electric standards, which would raise themselves up to the exact height of the bar. But it turns out one of them was broken. So they ended up having to put this manual one in and then wind it up themselves. And, you know, this took a good hour um, after warm-up started, after warm-up completed, actually. So we had a designated hour out on the track, did my warm-up, felt good, everything was going good, good weather, good wind, coach was out there, we were just loving the vibe. And then, you know, (laughs) the whole stand is just starting to break down and just malfunctioning. So as, as people saw when they were watching on TV, I think it was back home um though it was said on the screen technical malfunction uh competition delayed and i had no idea what was going on i was out there and i was just cruising i was like all right they're, they're obviously fiddling with something this took about an hour until the competition starts which is actually good because i usually don't come in for an hour you know after warm-up in australia because i'm one of the higher jumpers but i'd planned to come in early straight after warm-up uh, in rio because i was one of the lower jumpers but turns out just happened to be like in a you know normal Australian comp. I'd come in late. Competition started at five meters thirty. Eventually, once they sorted out the upright, um, five meters thirty. Came to comp. I was ready to rock and roll. Had my body suit on. You know, repping the green and gold as much as I could. Absolutely loved wearing it. Everyone else had probably been there and done that, but I was like, you know what? This is the green and gold. It's not often you get to wear that. So I was, you know, just loving every moment I could and took that energy from that and was able to apply it to my vault. And I was like, let's use this crowd as well. Done this a million times. Let's just do it. Um, They'll get around you if you do something good. So let's do something good. Came around to five meters 30 opening height, which is the highest I've ever started. Mind you, Uh, usually coming at 520. Jumped five meters 30 on my first attempt. And I was like, all right, we're off to a good start. Everyone else was sort of jumping 5.30 as well. And I was like, all right, yep, this is the real game now. Went to 5 meters 45. 5.45 was the second height. Cleared that first attempt as well. And I was like, whoa, we're on a roll here. Uh, everything was looking pretty good. Everyone else had cleared 5.45 except except a few. But I was like, all right, all good. No worries at all. Let's go to the next height. Next height, 5.60. 560 is quite a big height for me. It was second biggest height I've ever jumped. Um, And I probably wouldn't have been very happy if I didn't clear it. But I was lucky enough to clear 560 on my third attempt, uh, which I was stoked with, celebrated, went over to Kim, had a good laugh. And he was like, bro, you're out here at the Olympic Games and you just jumped 560. Can you believe it? And I was like, what? (laughs) I thought it was just normal comp. Uh, But no, I just absolutely immersed in the whole environment there was just ridiculous and I can't explain it but then it went to 5 meters 70 and unfortunately I missed it um, and 5 meters 70 would have got me into the final got everyone into the final uh, even even some boys that jumped 560 on their first attempt got in so if I jumped 560 first attempt I, w- I might have made final the Olympic Games final mind you so I was I was a bit gutted for that for that reason but coming away with second highest jump ever jump 560 I placed 15th, I think, overall. Um, I was I was pretty stoked with that. You can't really ask for more at, at, at age 19 and, you know, learned a lot. I remembered all of it, so I can just build from that. Watching on the – I can't remember if I was watching on TV or live streaming you, but I was watching you. Um, Kim was a long way away to talk to. Mm. Was there a moat or something between you guys? And how, yeah. could you hear him? Because yeah. it looked like he was quite long. Look, Kim standing. He's not a big bloke. And you're you're going over to chat to him, and he's leaning over and talking to you. But from TV, it looked like you were nearly thirty meters apart. We were, in yeah. fact. Um, and Kim's Kim's deaf, completely deaf, can't hear a thing. <laughs> so if I'm trying to shout at him from the run up runway, saying, you know, should I go now? Is the wind good, or where should I move my run up? I, t- you know, I just abandon that. Run over to him, wave my arms at him, 
and get his attention. Because um, he was he was there at the Olympic Games as well. It's not like he wasn't. He was immersing himself in everything. He was like looking around, taking in all the sights because there was all these awesome um, events going on at the same time. I think it was the 10K was going on and Mo Farah was running like right next to me in the in the lane next to where I was standing. I was like, I see this bloke on TV. This is awesome. Anyway, Kim was immersed in all that. So I had to get his attention somehow. And it was sort of a setup where there was the track down the bottom. It was a raised concrete step. And then there was a moat, sort of like a, a dugout where all the media was. And all their cameras would just pop out the top. You know, everyone was looking out from the, you know, below the grandstand. And then about head level, head high, the grandstand started above the dugout. And Kim was sort of, you know, a few levels back. He tried to make his way down to the fence sometimes but to talk to me. But we were just shouting at the top of our lungs to try and communicate. And that was really difficult. He he was able to get across his, his message every single time, which was good. But I think in the future, we should probably refine some hand movements or some signaling to help with that because we didn't anticipate it being a 70,000-person crowd being absolutely deafening. And remembering that there were two Brazilians in my comp as well. So every time they cleared a bar and we were trying to talk, you just you just you just gave up because they were just so loud. You couldn't hear yourself think, and if you can't hear yourself think, you have no idea what to say. So it's it's all just shambles out there. But you know, we'd we'd realise that, as I keep saying, I've done this so many times that there's nothing really that can go wrong. Um, so Kim was like, "It's just a comp, like it's a comp anywhere else. Our communication was pretty standard." Always the same things, always the same cues that I work on in Adelaide. Everything pretty well the sim, pretty well the same. I just went about it pretty well, exactly the same as I would any other competition. I remember that I'll go off a little bit of a tangent here, but my old mentor Alan Launder, who was Kim's coach back in the day, my coach's coach, he was this guru of pole vaulting. He knew everything. He'd travelled the world researching pole vault, um, and came back to Adelaide, which is where he brought. Alex Parnov over for the first time, who then moved to Perth. But he brought all the all the Russians over to Australia, and that's how Poland sort of started in Australia. He he instigated that. Um, but anyway, he has all this knowledge. Who'd given a little bit to Kim. He's written a book, and I was lucky enough to, you know, meet him for a few uh, a few times before he passed away. Uh, I think it was something 2015. Um, but yeah, he was sort of like a mentor to me. I've got his book and all this sort of stuff, but one of his famous sayings that I always remember that he sort of directed to me, but was always, you know, directing, you know, to the general vaulting population. But for me, what really resonated was he told me that back in 2014, when I qualified for World Juniors and I went overseas and I was dreading all these huge heights that I'd have to be jumping. But, you know, he was like to me, you've jumped five meters. Um, if you jump five meters over there, you're gonna make the final. You're gonna, it's gonna be an awesome competition for you. But five meter bar is a five meter bar anywhere in the world. Doesn't really matter where it is. It's not gonna be any higher. You're not gonna be on any different poles. It's gonna be exactly the same standards. Everything's gonna be the same, no matter if it's in Adelaide, no matter if it's in Eugene, no matter if it's at the Olympic Games. And I was like, all right, five meter bars, five meter bar anywhere. So let's just take it like it always is and I just did exactly the same as I always did jump the way I always do and usually if you've done the training if you have done all the work you put it all in you're going to get it out so my you can always sort of rely on your baseline at training to be about what you can produce at comp if you get lucky then you get lucky you jump a PB but my baseline at the time was 5 meters 60 and I produced 5 meters 60 so if you can make your baseline up there with the best in the world, then you're going to be in a pretty good space. And that's what I learned. Coming, um, finishing up the Olympics, coming back to Adelaide mm. after the Olympics, was there a, I've talked to a lot of high performance people on this show, uh, everyone sort of reacts differently uh, when they finish what they were doing. Mm. Uh, did you have any bad come down or did you get depressed or uh, when you got back to Adelaide, was it just so exciting because everyone was all over you? Congratulating yourself and you're on the back as well. Yeah. But you, mentally, in yourself, did you have a time where you think, oh, a downtime where you think, oh my God, 
I miss all that, or oh yeah, and learning to control those feelings. Mm. Uh, it might have been you might have been crying, start crying for no. The, the other two guys, both of them had sessions where they just cry. Post depression, post um competition blues. Yeah, mm. it's it's a real thing in athletics. I agree. I totally relate to those guys. Um, when you're in such an awesome environment with all your best mates competing with you at a, at the sport that you love, there's not much better than that. You can't really get much better than that. And then you come home. Um, and it's all sort of just diminished and everyone's gone their separate ways. No one lives in Adelaide that went to the Olympics either. Maybe like Jared Talent and Jess Trengrove, but that's about it. They were, they were the two guys that I could sort of relate to, but you're not living with them 24 seven. You can't really talk to them 24 seven. So it was quite hard to come back to Adelaide, little old Adelaide after being at the Olympics. Um, but yeah, I thought it would be easy. I, I was like, all right, I'm back home now. Let's let's just get in back into the rhythm of life. You know, you're going to have this awesome story that you're able to tell people when they ask. But, you know, other than that, other than that you're going to be fine. No worries at all. But I actually struggled a fair bit. Um, I had four weeks off of training, just which was the plan, you know, to get back into the season. Took four weeks off, ate way too much junk food, got fat. It was awesome. Put on, I think, five kilos or something. But that's that's standard, you know. Athletes can do that and then they get back into training. In those four weeks where I wasn't training, I didn't have uni because I'd um, come back halfway through the semester. So it was hard and I couldn't couldn't um, continue that. So I deferred second semester uni. I wasn't really doing much um, with my time. I had all these stories to tell, but I had no one to tell them to. Um, I had my parents, obviously, who lo- who were there with me in Rio. So they experienced it all for themselves. And I was able to tell them, the other parts, you know, the parts of the village and the parts of the stuff they didn't experience. But, you know, I couldn't really express myself to the full amount I would have liked, I think. I like to get my point across to people and get, you know, communicate and have good relationships with people. But when people can't really understand or relate to uh, being an elite athlete and living that lifestyle, it's it's quite hard because you can't, um, you know, you need a release every now and then. And I didn't really have that. So I, I had um, all these stories which I thought were awesome. And some people, yep, they got me over, um, got me to talk in front of schools or talk me talk in front of athletics clubs and stuff like that. That was awesome. I got to share my story to the, to the younger population, hopefully inspire them to be a bit more like, like us and uh, hopefully get to the Olympics one day if that's their dream. To the general population and to my normal friends that I see every day at uni, uh, they weren't really there and there was no one really that could sort of go, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I understand you. But no one was really like that. I just had to go four weeks on my own just with all this sort of stuff boiled up inside, which I would think about every night before I go to bed. And I was just like, that was the most incredible experience of my life. Um, and I'd hate to forget it and I'd hate to not tell anyone about it. But no one was really there to relate. So it was it was a little bit hard. Eventually, you get over that. You sort of move on. You get new goals. Once I started back at training, everything sort of changed. I was like, all right, let's go. New season, new you. Let's see if I can continue that. But it was quite hard coming back with all these emotions, all these you know, new clothes that everyone wanted to see, but no one could really relate to wearing. It was difficult. Your sports, your sports psychologist, did he go through some of this with you? How to handle that? Uh, have you talked that through and done some debriefs? <laughs> yeah, well, if well, I didn't really see him when I got back. Actually, it's it's one of the things that no one really understands. Uh, coming back, everyone sort of works on the preparation towards a big comp and doing the competition itself. But after that, everyone sort of sort of disregards it. But I think it's it's quite an important period where you get to reflect. Um, and analyze what you've just done and express the feelings that you felt and then learn from that. Whereas I sort of came back and I was just like in all this, you know, had all these things boiled up inside and couldn't wait to tell everyone. I couldn't really reflect because there was no one that could you know, help me with that really. And I didn't see my sports psychologist for a few few months after I got back just because I didn't think it was important. I thought it was just, you know, try and help me get back into the next season you know i think it would have probably been beneficial to help me come down and tell someone that sort of stuff but you know 
I was able to come back, get back into training. Everything's all good now. Um, and I'm looking forward to the next one. And you can't help that. You're just going to have to be able to deal with it better in the future. And I think I've learned from it. You know, people always be there to listen to you if you if you ask, but it's not that important. The next um, big step is World uh, Championships in London. Mm. So now you're in heavy training for that. Yeah, yeah. And refocusing. Yep. Re- getting those poles sharpened. Yeah. You got I noticed out the back. You got the Markov poles in your backyard. It doesn't get better than that. <laughs> no. I sleep with them. Really. <laughs> <laughs> I think go through the doorway. Yeah. Uh, so. What's happening now? You're just training and really starting to focus on that next. Yeah, pretty much. So I had the domestic season in Australia where I qualified for world champs. I won nationals again, which was awesome. Qualified me, you know, officially to go to my first world championships. And this year it's in London uh, in August. So I'm in heavy training now. It's um, I'm still doing my heavy gym work. My running load's quite heavy. But I'm just starting to refine my pole vault work. Um, I've gone back to full approach again, which is 18 steps. You sort of work on all the technical stuff, deep winter, and then you get you know further back in run-up. You start applying that technique into the further run-ups. And I have competition in three weeks, which is going to help me you know, on my, on my road to London. So I'm in still quite a heavy phase, but as gym starts to sharpen up from strength to more power, and then running starts to get shorter in distance and more recovery. Everything will start sharpening up and it will start applying uh, when I go back to full run up and start trying to execute technique. I'll have that good base there, which is good. It's it's um, very relieving or sort of like, you know, it's good to feel that you've done all the work and that you can just put together a comp after knowing you've got this awesome base to work with. It's like It's like building a pyramid instead of the Eiffel Tower. Eiffel Tower is very steep, um, but it's very fragile. If you've got a weak base, it's more likely to fall over at the top. But if you've got a strong pyramid and you've got a strong base to work with, there's not much that can really penetrate the pyramids. So um, it's good to have this good base behind me, and I'm in pretty good shape at the moment. I've been doing a few good pole vault sessions. I'm working on some technique, trying to stay more open in the swing, applying a little bit more energy into the pole so I can get a little bit more out at the end. Um, and my running's going really well, my gym's going well, I'm lifting good, and yeah, I just all all's on track for going away in a few weeks. So the Australian team, when you travel, will that be back to a small time in Europe before London, or is it just straight into the competition? Yeah, so Athletics Australia has another holding camp for this major comp. I decided, my coach and I, uh, one of my major things that I learned about my season last year was that I could do with some good competition experience, uh, competing against all those big guys, which I'm going to be competing against in London. So to try and make it less foreign to me, uh, going into a major, we're going to go over to Europe early. Uh, we're going to go over early July. I think it's the 2nd of July I leave Australia. And I've, I've got a few competitions lined up in Europe, a, a few in Germany, one in Belgium, Switzerland and Monaco, a few higher level competitions where I'll see some of my competitors that I'll be jumping against at world champs. So that'll be a good preparation for me, I think, if we can get organized and get get everything together in time before we go, because it's going to be hectic going overseas for so long um, with just me and my coach sort of just living day by day, training, trying, keeping up with you know all the competitions and everything like that. It'll be tough, but It'll be very valuable going into the competitions and learning what it's like to compete at that level with all those huge, huge names. So it's going to be awesome for me. And then I go into holding camp again, which is 10 days before the major in, we're going to, over to England. I think we're staying in Tonbridge, uh, which is you know a suburb of London, staying at a high school with track and field facilities, weights facilities, recovery facilities, everything that you need for an athletics team, accommodation and that sort of stuff. And we're going to be in there for 10 days before we head to the Meat Hotel in London. Um, and hopefully that'll get us in good shape. We get to leave everything behind, like I said, leave all the distractions and just go there, focus up. It's game time. Very exciting. Yeah. Um, we're just going to finish off with something easy for you now. I just want to know... What, I think we know what the answer to this is after listening to you talk for now. Uh, what makes you happy? 
What makes me happy, Rick? I think that I'd say the one thing that makes me most happy is success. Like like everyone else would probably say, I'd say, it, whether it's their form of success or mine, it's success. But knowing that you've put in the hard work to something that you dedicate your life to and reaping the rewards in a competition environment, whether it's, you know, at a major or just at a local meet or even you're just PBing and training, that, that success is something that keeps me going. If you don't have enough success in, you know, your field of work, if it's if it's work, if it's sport, if it's family life, if you're not experiencing success, you're not really having any enjoyment. So I think it's important, no matter who you are or what your goals are in life, if you set little tiny stepping stones that you can celebrate and enjoy and experience those tiny bits of success, even if you're you know, not looking to go anywhere particular, don't have huge aspirations like make the Olympics or anything, if you can set minor personal, physical, social or emotional goals that you can just pluck away at, life will just become really enjoyable. And I think I'm loving life at the moment, just plucking away everything that I'm doing, working hard in the gym, doing running, and then everything sort of just translating into, into pole vaulting and I'm experiencing some success, which is what I enjoy, and hopefully I get a little bit more when it comes. Okay. Thank you very much, Curtis. Yeah, thanks heaps, Rick. Thank you, Curtis. Last week, over 700 people listened to these podcasts. Please subscribe if you liked what you're hearing and forward these podcasts to your friends. Thank you for listening to Talk Town.